Now, the sermon series that we've been going through here at City has been entitled Life in the Spirit. We've been involving the Holy Spirit in our preaching in the sense of topically all summer long. And this morning, what the sermon that I'm going to bring is a sermon that's simply entitled Life in the Spirit Discrimination. Life in the Spirit Discrimination or Racism. And the reason why I want to talk about this and the way I'm going to talk about it is a way where we're going to utilize a lot more Scripture than I normally would on a Sunday morning. But the reason for this is, is because I want us to understand clearly what the Bible says about discrimination. I think it's important that we get there. Now, I do want to say this quick little infomercial, that if you are interested in the deeper theological discussion or you like deeper biblical discussion, on Wednesday nights for the next seven weeks, I'm going to do an in-depth Bible study. It'll be somewhat interactive through the Gospel of John. So we're going to be doing that here Wednesday nights from 7 to 8. But again, this morning, I'm going to use more Scripture than I normally do because here's why. I think many in our culture, because of political correctness, there's the clearest sense that bigotry or racism or discrimination is wrong. And it is wrong. But in that, I believe as followers of Jesus, we don't participate in things because of what culture says to do or not to do. We participate in it because we clearly sense that Scripture is showing us a way in which we are to live. And here's what I've found. Great ideas from culture motivate people, but biblical understanding transforms people. That's very different. I want to say that again. Cultural good ideas motivate people, but an understanding of Scripture through the power of the Holy Spirit transforms people from the inside out. I'm into transformation. I'm into that. And so in this, what I want to say this morning is we're going to move through some Scripture, and I think we're going to have some fun doing it. Now, where I want to begin is in the Older Testament. Now, I would begin in the, uh, in the book of Genesis, but what I know is you don't want to be here for all eternity. So I'm going to pick one passage of Scripture from the Older Testament that we're going to take a look at. And by the way, there's a little joke in my industry that says this, that a sermon does not have to be everlasting to be eternal. Did you get that? And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at an Older Testament passage that frames the perspective of God on culture. And then we're going to move into the Newer Testament. So we're going to begin with 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Now I'm well aware that many of us have never read the Bible. Many of us have never read the Older Testament. But the context of this verse is simple. You have an Older Testament prophet. His name is Samuel. And God has called him to pick the next king of Israel. And so what he's doing is he's looking at the candidates externally. And he's observing them externally. And God shows up to Samuel, to the prophet, and here's what is said by the Lord to the prophet Samuel in the Older Testament, 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. 
People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So our God is concerned about the heart, and the outward appearance is pretty much, in many ways, irrelevant to God. God looks at the heart. Now, I remember probably, I don't know, 15 years ago, I shared on this verse at a chapel that, at the school where my kids attend. They have chapel once a week. And so because I'm a pastor, they'll ask, they asked me to come in and teach. And so I thought, well, what am I going to teach the kids about? Because it was kindergarten through second grade. That's like the worst possible audience for me. Because I'm looking at it going, look, if they're all alive and they're not piled up in the middle of the floor at the end of the chapel, that's like revival in my world, right? So I'm thinking, well, how am I going to do this? So I went up there and to these little kids, I read the verse that I just read for you. I explained it briefly, read the verse, and then I said this, look, I want to illustrate it. And I had two boxes of cereal up front. One box was Captain Crunch and the other box was Rice Krispies. And so there was a big bowl up there, and I picked up the box of Captain Crunch, and I began to pour it out, and Rice Krispies came out, and all the kids began to boo. Boo, boo, you know? And so when I was done with that, I picked up the Rice Krispies box, and I poured it out, and Captain Crunch came out, and all the kids went, boo, boo, it's all wrong. You know, they were all, and I said, look, you know what, though? You looked at the outside of the box, but what was in it was different than what you thought was inside of it. And so I developed some little cheer that was kind of like, God looks at the inside. God doesn't look at the out." And I had all of these kids cheering. God looks at the heart. God doesn't look at the outside. And when all of that was over, I was exiting the chapel, and there was a couple standing in the back right. And one of that couple looked at me, because parents would come to chapel, they said, is that honestly true? I want to know, is that true? And if it is, we need to talk. Because you see, their entire life had been about what's on the outside. And if God cares about the heart, and it's what's inside a person, not their outward appearance, but if it's what's inside that God cares about, then it means a move. Now here's the deal. That's the best news you've ever heard. God cares about the heart. Because if it was about physical appearance, trust me, 95% of us would be out. I mean, look around you, right? I mean, seriously, you're looking at the person they wouldn't be in. They'd be out. They're definitely out. We're going to get to that in a moment. Now, that's not just in the Older Testament where God says, look, I'm not a God that looks at the outside. I look at the heart. In the Newer Testament, Jesus says the exact same thing. Jesus is dealing with a bunch of the religious leaders. They're dressing in certain regalia so that when they walk through public, everyone knows they're at the top of the heap of righteousness. It's about outward appearance, how you dress, all of that kind of stuff. Well, Jesus, as He interacts with them, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verse 15, here's what Jesus says. And the Lord Jesus told them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. In other words, what can be seen, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable 
in God's sight. Isn't that amazing? So here's a group of religious leaders who are trying to appear a certain way on the outside. And God says, I see right through that. And when I look at people, I look at the heart. It's not the outside. It's what's going on in the heart. Well, what you would find is, is that when Jesus is dead, buried, and resurrected, and then the Holy Spirit falls on the day of Pentecost, from that day on, the day of Pentecost is the day that the church was born. We can journey through the Newer Testament and see what it looks like where there's this God that doesn't look at the outside but looks at the heart. So the Newer Testament literally tells us what this looks like. We can discover this by kind of following two of the major figures after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. First one is the Apostle Paul. You see, Apostle Paul started as a Pharisee. He's one of the ones that dressed up a certain way. He was proud of his righteousness. He made sure everyone could look at him and know that he was righteous. That's how he lived his life. And then one day he met Jesus. And he stopped worrying about all that outward stuff. And he started looking at the inward stuff. He started looking at the heart and he became a follower of Jesus. Prior to being a follower of Jesus, he was killing Christians. He was going around with a letter from the temple and from the Roman governor and he was tracking down Christians and he was executing them. The book of Acts shows us this clearly. He meets Jesus, everything changes. Instead of killing them, now he is one of them and then he becomes what we call a missionary. And so what the Apostle Paul does is he leaves Jerusalem as a follower of Jesus and he starts moving an ever greater distances to cities outside of Jerusalem and he plants churches. Well, here's the description of one of the churches that the Apostle Paul has planted. It's found in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. And here in talking about the church, here's what he says. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian. Now, Scythian is not from Star Wars. Just want to let you know. A Scythian is a nomadic people group that lived up near the Samaritans. And here the Apostle Paul is describing, he says, here there is no Gentile Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly love, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now here's what Paul is showing, that if you walked into that church and you looked around, you'd be stunned it was who was sitting there. Because Jews and Gentiles don't sit together. Barbarians and Scythians don't sit together. The people that were in that room, culturally, it was an absolute anomaly. You'd never see it anywhere else. And so the Apostle Paul begins to recognize and teach all the churches that as followers of Jesus, when you step in to worship, you look around and you begin to think to yourself, if it wasn't for Jesus no way, Jose. So, not only that, we move on to the next Scripture from the Apostle Paul. And here's what he begins to talk about. 
But this is a unique context. We pick them up again in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul has now gone to another city, and he's planting another church. At least that's his intention. And he shows up in the city of Athens. And the city of Athens is famous because the Athenian people live there. The Apostle Paul goes in, he's doing some open-air preaching, and what you have to know about Athenian people is that every other ethnic group and race was subservient to them. They're better than everyone. Do you want to know why? They taught their people that they did not come from other ethnic groups. There's no immigrant blood at all in an Athenian. An Athenian actually was brought out of the ground and the Athenians are unique to themselves. And so an Athenian person, someone living in Athens, would look at every other culture and look down on them. The Apostle Paul shows up. He's doing some open-air preaching. And here's what he says, Acts chapter 17, verse 26. Here's what he says. I want you to catch this. From one man God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. Now here's what you need to know. The word nations in that scripture is the Greek word ethnos. It's where we get the English word ethnic from. And so what Paul is teaching these pompous people that live in Athens is you think you're someone, but you're wrong. God made every single ethnic group. He made them all. And it shows his creative genius. It shows his love. It shows his diversity. And he looks at the, Ath the Athenian people and says, you think you're something and you're wrong. God is the God that made ethnic groups. And you're no better but no worse than anyone else. They throw them out of the city. They don't want to hear that. But what we know is, as followers of Jesus, is that God is the one that made every single ethnic group that they should inhabit the entire or the whole earth. So, the next thing we're going to talk about, because I know many times when we sit in a congregation like this, many of us go, okay, so I'm, I'm looking at the issue of racism. I'm looking at that issue of looking at a group of people. And you know what? I've kind of dealt with that before God. I don't really feel like that's a huge part of my life. So what I want to do is shift gears, because what we're going to talk about next applies. And it's this. The Newer Testament doesn't talk as much about racism as it does a Greek word, favoritism. Favoritism. Favoritism is a Greek word that's a compound of two other Greek words that mean this. The first part of it means the Greek word for face, and the second part of it is a Greek word lumbano, which means to choose, accept, or receive. So the word favoritism means I make a choice by face value, by what I see. Now, I want to deal with this because I think this is much closer to home for most of us than we would actually think. And so as we pick up our story again, now we're going to leave the Apostle Paul. We're going to pick up the Apostle Peter. Why are we going to follow the Apostle Peter? Because he has the second best name in the entire New Testament after Jesus. 
And the other reason is he's also a missionary. So Peter exits Jerusalem, and he's moving out, and he's preaching the gospel. And when he does, he comes to a region where there are Gentiles, and he's a Jew, they're Gentiles, and there are Jewish laws about how much you can connect with Gentiles. Well, Peter's preaching the gospel, and as he does, he begins to notice something strange, that some of these Gentiles, non-Jews, are actually following Jesus. And it freaks him out. Because as a Jew, he believes that God favors the Jewish people over everyone else. He's been taught that, he believes it, and in the midst of that struggle, God gives him a vision. And in the vision, God challenges his favoritism. And in the midst of being challenged by that, all of a sudden, he's asked to go into a Gentile home. And there are tons of Jewish laws about a Jew going into a Gentile home. But because of his vision, he steps into the home, and it's the home of a guy named Cornelius. And as he steps into this Gentile home, he's getting ready to begin to preach to them about Jesus, share the gospel with them. And in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, here's what Peter says to the Gentiles in that home. It says this, then Peter began to speak, and I want you to catch this. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every ethnos, it, he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You see, the apostle Peter had been a follower of Jesus, but his heart was filled with favoritism. And when he steps into that Gentile home, God opens up his eyes and he begins to understand for the first time ever, God does not favor one ethnic group over another. He doesn't. And if you were to read on, you would discover that Peter exits that home and as he's going back to Jerusalem, news reaches the main church in Jerusalem before he gets there, and someone tells on him that he went into a Gentile home as a Jew. And so he's called to account for his activity, and here's the report that he gives in Acts 15.9. Here's what the Apostle Peter says to that church in Jerusalem. Here's what he says. God did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. In other words, what Peter is saying is all of that discrimination that he had always had, where Jews were better and everyone else is less than, it's dawned on him through the power of Jesus that God does not discriminate, but anyone who turns to him through Jesus is acceptable to God. God is not a discriminator. And then what happens next is amazing. Because Peter comes back, he shares this, the church in Jerusalem agrees with him, they accept what he says, and then the pastor of that church is the half-brother of Jesus, his name is James. And James writes his own letter, and in his letter in James chapter 2, verse 1, here's what he writes to his church. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show, what's the next word? Favoritism. Anyone who follows Jesus 
has to begin to understand that we cannot show favoritism. Now, here's why. Favoritism is a belief that one person is more valuable than another. There's a double-edged sword to this, though, and the first cut of it is of less concern than the second. So let me deal with the first concern first, and it's this, that someone feels intrinsically better than another person because of their race, because of their ethnicity, because they're more educated, because they're more athletic, because their physical body looks better, because they're taller, because they're shorter, because they're skinnier, because they're heavier, whatever it is, there's this favoritism that they feel they're better than someone else. Now that's one cut of the lie that's deadly, but the other one is worse. We live in a culture, and I know there are some sitting in this room, you feel less than because you've bought into the lie too. You feel like you're not worth as much because of some lie that has been pitched because of favoritism. And favoritism can permeate a culture where a whole group of people who are some way, somehow, some way unique, they feel like they're less than, and they honestly believe that they are of less value than other people because the needle and the compass of favoritism always goes in another direction and never looks to them. You see the deadly side of favoritism? One person feels like they're better. That's a lie. The other person feels as though they're worse. So, as we close, I want to share with you my battle with favoritism. I grew up in a home where athletics were the highest value in many ways. Academics were, but sports were a big deal. So I grew up on a farm. My dad was an athlete. He really kind of pushed all this, and so I loved sports. Now, the truth be told, though, is the reason why I loved sports was it was the only way you could get out of farm work, just being totally honest. So because of that, I played ice hockey, soccer, ran cross country, and I wrestled. If there was a sport, I did it because that got me out of farm work. You understand this? So if it's a sport, I'm in. I want out, right? So what ends up happening is I'm all about sports. I end up as a chaplain at a university. I'm going to all the sporting events, and then God gives me a son. Well, when my son Peter was born, you look at a lot of the pictures when he's a child. He's got a soccer ball right between his knees. He's kind of drooling on it, but there's a soccer ball there. And I'm thinking to myself, man, my kid, he's going to be a D1 soccer player. He's going to go do, and I have all of these dreams. And by the, about the age of five, it was absolutely clear, this kid ain't an athlete at all. None. So I'm trying to force the issue. And by now we're living in Charlottesville. So I sign up to coach a soccer team and my son is on the team, and here we are, the kids are running around. I called it amoeba ball. Wherever the ball went, the amoeba went with it, right? So there's no positions, really. They're just little kids. But I was so excited because my kid's going to be an athlete. You want to know why? I favor athletes. Huge favoritism. Well, I coach this team, and I'll clearly remember, I'm at Dardentau Park. They're playing amoeba ball, and it was time for my son to get substituted in. And I turn to the bench and I go, Peter, he's not even there. <laughs> Peter! And I look out and he's about 35 yards away in the middle of a field digging a hole with a stick. 
I'm going to tell you what, I was so angry. Peter, you're going to go in. He goes, nah. Peter, nah, not interested. And let me tell you something. I devalued my son. Total confession. I didn't think he was what he ought to be. I favor athletes. And if you know my son, Peter, he can't stand sports to this day. But you know what? God created him uniquely. And he has other giftings. But you see, I hold certain giftings above others. And sports is one. And because my son was not an athlete, I didn't love him the way I should. And it took the power of the Holy Spirit and the voice of God that sounded a whole lot like my wife, Fran, who came to me and said, let me tell you something, God's given you a son and you better start parenting him in love because you're not. Let me tell you, favoritism makes you devalue people. It makes you love them less. It makes you feel as though you're better and they're a lot less worthy. But here's what my Bible teaches me. God is a God who shows no favoritism. And He's a God that has created every ethnic group, every gifting, and He has blessed each person with a different one. Let's stand together. As we stand together... I have one final thought, and it's this. We as a group of people are a people that move away from discrimination, and we move away from favoritism, not because it's PC, but because of JC. Did you get that? It's somewhat humorous, but I'm dead serious. I believe we're going to pursue this in our lives, and I believe right now we're going to examine our hearts. Do you want to know why? Not because it's politically correct, but it's because what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to be a group of people who show no favoritism, because God doesn't either. So can we close our eyes, but leave our hearts open in the midst of God's presence? The worship team is going to lead us in worship. But I'm going to ask that you would take just a couple of moments and you would let the Holy Spirit allow you to examine your heart. God looks at the inside. God doesn't look at the outside. God's a God that shows no favoritism. God's a God who's created every ethnic group and every gifting that He's put in specific people. How am I doing with this? Let's take a moment before we worship together and the worship team will be leading us, but let's at least take a moment or two to let the Holy Spirit examine our hearts. How great the chasm that lay between us How high the mountain I could not climb In desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written. 
Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from As we conclude our time together, I want to encourage you to be a group of people who are praying over our city. We're going to pray about that as we conclude. But um, I wanted to make an announcement to our church family that Sunday, August the 26th, following the morning service, we're actually going to be having an all-church meeting. And the reason for that is, is that there is um, an opportunity, a facility prospect for a future home. And so on the 26th, we're going to be talking more about that. So I want, you to I want to encourage you to please be praying with us and for us over the next couple of weeks. Um, this is just an opportunity at this uh, point in time, and I want to be very careful about that. And I also want to encourage you to pray for the leadership of City. We've been working behind the scenes for many, many weeks and months, and we're moving in a sort of a direction. And we really, the purpose for that meeting will be to bring you up to speed about where we're at and what we believe the Lord has put in our hearts. So that's Sunday morning, the 22nd, following the service over at the John, or I'm sorry, not the John Paul Jones, but the Martin Luther King Performing Arts Center. As we close out in prayer, would you pray with me? God, we're a group of people who are so prone to the fallen world in which we live. But in the midst of this, help us to be a group of people who show no favoritism. God, please help us. We need you. 
Jesus, in the midst of that prayer, we thank You that You are the One that loves all. That You show no favoritism. We're so grateful for that. Help us to be a group of people that shine that light and that love everywhere we go. And now I pray that the Lord would bless us. I pray that the Lord would keep us. I pray that the Lord would cause His face to turn towards us and that He would give us His peace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would like to remain in worship, you can. And if not, feel free to slip out. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe out of the silence. The roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Let's sing that again. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to You freely 
the highest price, suffering you traded blood for me. My heart will sing the deepest praise, my lips rejoice, my hands are raised for the death that brought me into life. Jesus, you gave all for love. I'm standing in the wonder of your great love. Is it overwhelming? And overwhelming sacrifice, you freely paid the highest price, suffering. Traded blood for me. Ooh, my heart will sing the deepest praise. My lips rejoice, my hands will raise for the death that brought me into life. My Jesus, you gave
standing in the 